Hi, I'm Susan Foch, and when I was 18 years old, I launched a national nonprofit organization out of my freshman college dorm room. Now, with almost a decade of experience under my belt, I'm here to teach you my tried and true tips and tricks for running your own nonprofit or social enterprise and how to build it from the ground up. You're listening to this podcast because you're ready to make a difference in this world. I see you, I hear you, and I'm ready to help you. Now let's make an impact together. You're listening to the Make an Impact podcast, episode 27. Happy, happy holidays, you guys. Uh, No matter what you practice, no matter what holiday that you are celebrating this season, I hope that you are finding some joy in this difficult time. I hope that you are also finding the ability to rest and recharge a little bit, um, you know, with or without your families this holiday season. I hope that everyone is staying very safe, even if it means a, a good old little sacrifice this year. I know that it's really tough. I know that for some people, this is like a dream come true. So, um, you know, rock rock the thought process that you currently have going on. But either way, I hope that you are just uh, taking some time, taking some reflection, taking some lovely rest. Um, If you're not taking rest and you feel like you have to keep uh, working, working, hustling, grinding, crazy, whatever, when all you want is just a freaking nap, um, go back to episode 26, where I basically just rant about the fact that guilty rest is not real rest. And then I lead you through a guided meditation, if that's your your kind of thing. Or if you've never done it before and you just want to try one, uh, please be my guest over in episode 26. Today, however, I am bringing you guys a really fun interview for the week with Jack Silverstein. He is a serial philanthropist, serial fundraiser based in Canada. He has done so much great philanthropic work, so much amazing fundraising work to the point where he literally wrote the book on it. Um, It's called Tales of the Trenches, what he's learned in 25 years of fundraising. It is out now it got released at the first of this month, so December first, twenty twenty. It was absolutely phenomenal. Um, definitely go check out his book, but also really enjoy this conversation that we have about his lessons in fundraising, um, a lot of the challenges that he has seen along the way, kind of different ways that you can pivot and navigate those fundraising conversations. And we also end up wrapping it up with a really cool conversation about endowment funds. So if you've ever been curious about that, uh, definitely make sure that you listen to the end. Um, and just have a really happy holiday season, you guys. I hope that you can find find all the joy. Um, I just, my hope for you is to find all of the joy, all of the rest, and all of the sunshine that you possibly can this year as we get ready for 2021. And so without further ado, please help me welcome Jack Silverstein to the podcast. Jack, thank you so much for being here. Um, go ahead, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be to one of these fundraising experts that you are today. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm Jack Silverstein. I've been in fundraising ever since I was in high school. The high school students were entrusted to do the door-to-door canvassing for the Canadian Cancer Society. I would like to say that I did it for altruistic reasons, but the reality is I got out of school for doing it. Um, But what I learned was people were making huge gifts in those days. This was kind of the mid-80s or early 80s, and I I was fascinated by people's philanthropy, philanthropy and benevolence. So I stuck around through my college years. I stayed at home for, uh, for college, and I volunteered with the Cancer Society as their uh, residential coordinator uh, on the door-to-door canvassing. Loved it. 
Um, and the local executive director there had a buddy of his who was starting a fundraising consulting firm and said, you know what, Jack, you'd be pretty good at this. So I did fundraising consulting um, for four or five years. And as a good Jewish boy, my specialty was Catholic churches. Um, but I did some churches, I did some symphonies, I did some educational facilities. Um, and then I was, uh, came to Ottawa, our nation's capital, and I went through Carleton University, uh, the Ottawa Hospital, which is an amalgamation of three hospitals, uh, the local Jewish Community uh, Foundation, and most recently I was the Vice President of Development for the YMCA of the National Capital Region. So I'm one of those folks that has kind of been in fundraising my entire life. Mm-hmm. I love that. That actually, I want to chat about something with you. So I've heard a lot of great things and also a lot of slack that people have gotten for making, um, you know, a, a philanthropic endeavor mandatory in high school and or college. Um, you usually see that, I think, in like Greek life, sororities and fraternities have set philanthropy hours. And I always thought it was great because it was instilling this idea of philanthropy and doing good as a young person. And then I've also heard flack from it that it's training people at a young age to look at philanthropy and charity like a requirement, like a mandatory thing to check off a box and not like instill that. What are your thoughts on that? Obviously, it spurred a life of philanthropy for you, but... (laughs) Yeah, and and it wasn't mandatory when I was there, but my oldest is in uh, 12th grade. And in order for them to get a high school diploma, they have to volunteer a total of 40 hours over their four years of high school. It's really not volunteering, it's voluntold. Mm. Um, And I think that it it loses a huge thing. uh, And a lot of them wait until grade 12 to do it. And they try to cram in 40 hours all in one week. And it really, I don't think it accomplishes what it was meant to do. Mm-hmm. I think if it was meant to do, you know, 10 a year, that might be a little bit different so that they can try and have a relationship with a charity um, over those four years. But to arbitrarily just say, hey, listen, you need to have 40 hours of volunteer work. I actually don't think it's a great thing. And from a charity's perspective, to manage those volunteers for someone who really doesn't want to be there mm-hmm. is problematic. Yeah, for sure. Um, how can we kind of, aside from just making it more of a spread out thing, so doing like, you know, 10 hours a, a year, um, what are some other ways, and I know this isn't the bulk of our interview, I'm just curious, what are some other ways that we can kind of create and like instill more of that, creating a relationship and actually volunteering uh, at something you care about at that young age so that it's not the strain on the nonprofit being like, what am I going to do with this kid for 40 hours in one week? Um, you know, but also for that kid who's looking at it like this like dumb thing they have to check off a box so that they can graduate. How can we change that narrative? So I think it's it's flipping where the onus is. So at the moment, it's the students who have to go and find a charity of their choice and to try and get in front of that charity and say, I'm going to volunteer, whether it's, you know, uh, stocking shelves at a food bank or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, you know, also remembering that in Canada, we have some pretty tight rules about dealing with a vulnerable population, right? So there's, um, you know, sometimes there's criminal reference checks and things of that sort. And, and kids that are under 18 are usually not even allowed to volunteer. Um, so I think it has to be flipped totally on its head and have the charities come in almost like a job fair and say, wow, the, this is our charity. This is what we do, because it assumes that the kids out there know what's out there. Um, And I think that's a a false assumption, you know, kind of the big charities, but the majority of charities are five staff or less, you know, they're Mm -hmm. the small little mom and posh charities that are out there. 
um, for the vast uh, majority of them. So I think just kind of flipping it onto its head and having the, the charities kind of come in and say, wow, this is what we're looking for. Is there anyone out there who has these skills that can kind of match up? Yeah, I like the idea of making kind of like a philanthropy fair and find having kids find like their niche. And yeah. I think also teaching them, you know, where where their passion is coming from, um, seeing what kind of speaks to their soul. So right. I think that's a great idea. I think we should well, institute go. that in high schools all over North America. How exciting. Yes. <laughs> Love it. So let's um, thank you for indulging that conversation. No worries. Um, let's talk about Yuck Enterprises. So yep. share that endeavor with us. So interesting, uh, nice Jewish boy. My Hebrew name, uh, Jack, is, would be Jacob or Yaakov. So my parents mm-hmm. called me Yucks till I was like two or three years old. And I used to go to school and tell people my name is not Jack, it's Yucks. I had no idea that that wasn't my name. Uh, <laughs> so I've had this, this company for years, you know, and I did with consulting. So I'm kind of, uh, you know, after my last job, I've decided to kind of hang out my single shingle and see where the, uh, the, uh, chips fall where they may. Um, but I think that really one of the things that I've done is I've kind of been in the business for over 25 years. And so I've learned a lot, a lot through the school of hard knocks. Um, and there's certain little nuggets that I've kind of learned. And then I scratched my head and said, wow, you know what, if someone told me this 25 years ago, some of these lessons learned, it would save me a whole lot of heartache. Um, and, uh, you know, I think fundraising is kind of going through a messy adolescence as, uh, as Jason Lewis calls it. Um, it, it's never been seen in the past as like a real profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, there's bankers, there's doctors, there's accountants, there's lawyers. And fundraising was always kind of something that you did in your spare time. Um, and I think it's become much more of a profession now. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we've seen as of late, you know, there's billions of dollars that have flowed to charities. And I think that there's the professionals, that conduit that kind of matches up the donor's needs and the organization's needs. And where those intersect, that's your sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, kind of learning what resonates with folks and what doesn't resonate with folks. Mm-hmm. Have you found, you know, that when you've told people maybe in your younger years that you were in fundraising, it was, you got a reaction that was like the, oh, yeah. Like you're just in fundraising, you're just in nonprofits, yes. because I find a lot of times with um, the younger demographic that we work with now, the late teens, early 20s, um, an unfortunate stereotype is that when you tell people you got you want to go to nonprofits, a lot of the reaction is, oh, so you're going to be broke like the rest of your life. It's not viewed as this like really, um, you know, like it's a noble career, but it's not like a fruitful one for the actual person doing it. Yeah. So what was some of the stereotypes you had to kind of fight through and go with as a fundraiser? Well, great, great question. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I always thought that some people thought of fundraising somewhere in between a used car salesman and an insurance salesman. Um, <laughs> or the exact opposite is like you're going out and begging for money. I could never beg anyone for money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of gets the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. The reality is, is that the best canvases I've ever been on, I never asked for a gift. You know, you inspire the donor and they turn around and say, wow, Jack, like, I'm, I'm blown away by this. What can I do to help? Mm-hmm. Um, so they ask me, oh, you know, there's a gap. If we had this little widget, it would make our life so much easier. Oh, how much is that widget? I'll buy it for you. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's where, where it really comes in. But yeah, you know, um, it, it's an interesting world, the fundraising world. The average tenure of a kind of a mid-range fundraiser is 18 to 36 months. That's it. 
Mm. Um, and they tend to hop, those that are in the fundraising world, they tend to hop from charity to charity to charity because no one's in this business to get rich. Um, you know, they're in it to make a difference. And the reality is, is that as soon as it stops becoming kind of fun for them, they'll move on to another charity. And there's more than enough charities out there that we're, are really hungering for good, qualified folks. Um, but those folks that are at the top of their game um, certainly do command decent salaries. And I believe that they're worth every penny of it. It's that mentality, though, that so many people think that every dollar raised should, you know, you should have zero over, overhead, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone should kind of uh, be volunteering their time. And it just doesn't work that way. Um, so it's, it's kind of managing those expectations that are out there. Mm-hmm. That you just hit the nail on the head of my favorite rant to go on ever, <laughs> which yeah. is, um, you know, it's paying nonprofit people what they're worth in right. their kind of in their for-profit, um, you know, equivalent so that we don't lose them to the for-profit sector um, or so that they don't take a different you know, insurance sales job and then fundraise on the side and make it just this like leftover stuff. Um, And two, the fact that once they get a little bored, they'll move on to a new charity. So let's, I want to, I want to dive so hard into that. Um, What are some ways that we can keep like, so if, if an average fundraiser is only there for did you say 18 to to 36. to 36 months, how can we keep them engaged at that organizations that they don't feel like is that fully compensation or is it is it some kind of other stimulation that they're missing before they they want to go somewhere else so i would say compensation is a very very small part of it because you know Mm -hmm. when they hop from one charity to the other it's not that oh i'm making x here and i'm going to make two x here Mm-hmm. It doesn't really work that way. It's all kind of in the same ballpark. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's being given the opportunities, whether it's to learn new skills. Um, so I'm a big proponent of staff enrichment, mm-hmm. um, s- sending people on courses, furthering their skills, getting them to develop as, as individuals. And, you know, asking, you know, it's just kind of leadership 101, asking them what they need in order to be successful. Some, it may be a writing course. Uh, some, uh, you know, have horrible computer skills, um, some it's public speaking, whatever it is, and it, it's unique to each individual. There's not a magic bullet that says, oh, this is going to keep us, uh, keep your, your staff here for longer mm-hmm. than 18 to 36 months. Mm-hmm. In all the positions I've been in, I tended to have staff that were there for at least five years. Um, and I think that part of it is, is that I, I foster an open relationship and it's, it's changing, you know, it's, it's very much the same way as any business. You know, if a, a, someone graduates college today, they're going to go through nine careers in their life, not nine jobs, nine careers. Um, <laughs> so, and that's spooky. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's also making sure that work-life balance is there. So, you know, you have the Gen, uh, Gen Z group that it isn't all about the money. It's making sure there is that work-life balance, that they aren't putting in the 15-hour days nonstop. Mm -hmm. Listen, in the fundraising world, we all have to kind of put in those extra hours and work, you know, the weekends or, you know, if if there's an event, it's all hands on deck and everyone understands that. But it's not every single day that you do that. It all kind of works out well in the wash Mm -hmm. and to be treated as professionals. Um, So it's making sure there is that work-life balance. So if, you know, you have a golf tournament and you're putting in those crazy hours, then you say, hey, you know what, take off a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it has to be able to kind of be an ebb and flow Um, and just kind of, oh, hey, listen, we're the nine to five all the time, clock in, clock out. And by the way, there's all this extra stuff too. Well, that doesn't really work well. It's it's an archaic way of kind of setting up the work dynamic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so just ensuring that people have those opportunities for personal enrichment as well as professional enrichment. Mm, I love that. Um, I want to kind of go backwards to something else you said sure. that really stuck out to me, which was, um, you know, one of the things that you found for fundraising and one of your biggest successes was not ever asking for a gift, but inspiring that that donor who wants to turn around and say, wow, like, how can I help you? What has been the ticket or maybe like top three tickets, whatever it is, um, to really cracking that code and really inspiring a donor in a way who they want to turn around and donate to your charity without being asked, without being provoked. What are some of those keys that you have found? So the number one key is it's not about the organization. It's Mm -hmm. about the donor. The Mm -hmm. donor is doing it to fulfill their personal mandate or their personal mission. And sometimes, you know, I've gone in with a certain project in mind that a donor I thought would be really interested in. And we have a discussion and the donor says, you know, you get the impression the donor isn't really interested in that. So you have to have the wherewithal to kind of change your, your course and start talking about something else. And lo and behold, hey, that really resonates with the donor. But, you know, so many times people come in with blinders. I'm going to go ask them to go fund a, an MRI machine. Um, you know, and that's, that's all that we're going to ask them for when really they're interested in medical research. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still under the auspices of healthcare. But if I went in and started, you know, really showing them the diagrams and the stats and this and that, well, that's really not of interest to them. Um, and having those great and frank open discussions, and it's really, it's a level of trust that's built over the years. I'm talking about the major donors. Mm-hmm. It's a level of trust that's built over the years. I've even introduced, and I, I talk about it in my book, I've introduced some donors to other charities um, that said, wow, you know what, you're really interested in ABC. We don't do ABC, but this charity does. Let me make an intro for you. And it's not like they took their baseball and bat and said, okay, we're leaving your organization and we're going to this other one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it works well and, and everything kind of comes around. Uh, there's a great book by Tim Sanders called Love is the Killer App. And it talks all about kind of opening up your, your Rolodex to people um, and introductions. And there's no harm in it. It all comes back to you. Because, you know, if I introduce someone to a different charity, then maybe a different charity will introduce someone to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's all that kind of karma it kind of comes around in mm-hmm. the grand scheme of things. So I think going in with your mind made up is, is probably a faux pas. As a matter of fact, most times I don't go in with a proposal. Um, we'll have a discussion. And I'll go back to my office and we'll kind of summarize the discussion. And I may include a proposal as a follow-up and say, wow, just to summarize, this is what we spoke about. You know, these are the kind of impact things that a new widget's going to do and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And that just summarizes the meeting. But going in and spending all this time on a proposal where half of the time they don't even want to read it because, uh, you know, it's like this, it's really thick. And the other half, you know, it may not actually resonate with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so going in with, with your mind made up is probably not a great tool. Everyone says you have two ears and one mouth, so you should be uh, listening twice as much as you speak. I've never heard that, but I love that. There you go. <laughs> fantastic. So, and you mentioned it, let's talk more about your book. Okay. So you wrote this fantastic book all about fundraising, all about the things you've learned about fundraising over the years. So first of all, uh, what is it called? And what are some of the, the other keys, aside from just really great listening with your donors, um, that you've learned over this really robust career you've had? 
Sure. So it's called Tales from the Trenches, what I learned from 25 years in fundraising. And I kind of uh, put an analogy, Tales from the Trenches, kind of like war stories. Every good fundraiser has kind of their war stories out there. Um, but, you know, you were, use the word campaign so often. Well, campaign is actually only used in three different arenas. One is politics, one is war, and one is fundraising. Those are the only three times that you ever use the word campaign. That's funny. Well, you might also call advertising, but that might be fundraising in a way. But anyways, mm -hmm. you know, I think that it's there. So really what these are is it's about 50 different anecdotes that I've written. And it talks about different things about some of the myths that you may dispel or some leadership um, issues or major gifts or capital campaigns. Um, and some of them have been updated with kind of a COVID twist to it and says, hey, now that life has changed a little bit. We aren't getting together to have a gala with 1,500 people anytime soon. Um, how do we pivot on that? Uh, what's the future going to be? And really, there's some, some nuggets in there, you know, uh, some, some lessons learned, you know. So when you go and you ask someone for a gift, you're only ever, ever going to hear one of five answers. Now, obviously, there's polite and not-so-polite versions of them, but there's only five distinct answers. So the reality is, once you hear those five answers, you know how to respond. And people's greatest fear when they don't want to fundraise is someone's going to ask me a question and I'm not going to know how to respond. Well, I take that fear right out of there. So if you have only five answers that you're ever, ever, ever going to hear, now you know. If they say yes, you do this. If they say no, you do this. And so on and so forth. Mm. You know, what makes a good prospect? What makes a good donor? Um, talking about stewardship, you know, all these key things that are out there to kind of make that holistic approach for a fundraising or a development office. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that that's really helpful too, because when, you know, especially a new fundraiser comes in and they know they have a 20% chance of hearing one of these things, it takes out, I think, a lot of that anxiety and that fear of, of just the unknown. Because as human beings, we naturally fear the unknown, right? Totally. Um, what, you know, and we obviously, we always talk about our new COVID world, but before that, um, I know you mentioned like a, a 15,000 person gala. Um, what was maybe one of the more successful fundraising events or campaigns that you were ever on, whether you orchestrated it yourself or you just were on a team for it? What was the most like standout fundraising event of your career? Um, I would say that we ran a golf tournament that was a real high-end golf tournament. Um, and it was one of those golf tournaments that once you paid your sponsorship, because uh, it was essentially a sponsor's tournament, you were never asked for another dollar until the silent auction. Hmm. Um, you know, if people are spending five, six, ten thousand dollars $10,000 on a foursome, you don't want to nickel and dime them and say, oh, you know, a beer's three bucks, a bag of chips is a dollar fifty. Just go find a sponsor for it. And say, you know, uh, company ABC is the beer sponsor and company XYZ is the snack sponsor. And I think that that really elevates things. And people go, wow, that's a real classy tournament. Um, you know, even at the golf tournaments, we used to have, uh, you know, everyone would come in their cars. We would have their cars washed while they were playing golf. That's brilliant. Right? So <laughs> it was just, a, you know, a classy touch that was there. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a, you know, it was a high-end touch i love golf tournaments only in the fact that my world is 144 golfers right that's your world that's a full 18 hole golf tournament yeah. as opposed to a walkathon or you know some of the other gala events where 
you you could have thousands of people. Your world is 144 in the golf world. So I think that that's, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to admit, though, I am not a giant events person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think events are risky. Um, and uh, I would much prefer to go and ask someone for a gift, for a philanthropic gift. Mm-hmm. Um, furthermore, I don't think events necessarily are supporting the cause. Um, it's, you know, the experience that folks may do. Um, in a former life, we used to rappel down a, a, a 17-story building. You had to raise X amount of dollars, and you rappel down the building. People weren't necessarily doing it to support the organization. They were doing it for that experience, how often you get to rappel down the side of a building. Mm-hmm. Um, or if, you know, you run a spinathon and you ask your friends to support you, they aren't necessarily supporting the organization. They're supporting you. Right. Um, and as soon as you leave your allegiance to that organization, they tend not to be donors. Mm-hmm. Um, they're there supporting you. I would much prefer to do um, face-to-face and major gifts. So we had kind of an event, and it was when I worked for the Jewish community. There was a war uh, with, with Lebanon in 2006, mm-hmm. and there were a bunch of bombings in northern Israel, which in Ottawa we were partnered with. We ran an emergency campaign. So we brought all of our top donors together under kind of a dome, uh, and we, we said we needed to raise X amount of dollars, and they raised close to $2 million in about an hour and a half. Wow, that took my breath away for a second. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, you look at that and you're like, wow, that's impressive. But people, mm-hmm. you know, they rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, again, urgency drives fundraising. Um, so when there's something really urgently happening, you know, if you, you go back to Hurricane Katrina and, you know, the devastation that was there, there was no more money in the world the day before Hurricane Katrina than there was the day after Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. Yet tens of millions of dollars flowed to help out you know, the, the folks that lost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just making sure that that case is urgent and compelling. Right. Um, and I think that that's part of the issues now that's happening with COVID is to try and create a case that's urgent and compelling. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the social service agencies have done that because so many social service agencies have, had, have seen their, their client base increase, you know, whether it's food banks or shelters or things like that, um, where, you know, you flip it to the arts and I think they're having a much harder time creating an urgent and compelling case. In Canada, the arts are closed. You can't mm-hmm. go to a museum. You can't go and see the symphony, right? They don't have those crowds. So it makes it real hard to go out and fundraise for something. Well, you're on pause. What do you need the money for? You aren't spending any money. You aren't paying anyone. Um, so it's a, different, it's a different mentality that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always urgency drives the case. Which is so true. And yeah, it's part of one of the reasons why everything in COVID has been so difficult. You know, like we've seen things like, uh, you know, Feeding America, other food banks have skyrocketed because that's one of the significant areas of need. But yeah, like you said, the arts, or I just think organizations who had more outdated fundraising sources, um, they all really got trampled, even if they were successful in 2019 in that method. Um, everything is, is just abolished now. So to that note, I would like to ask you what your thoughts are on, because yes, obviously urgency, um, especially, you know, traumatic events, disasters. Um, I think, what did we even see when the, when the cathedral and with Notre Dame, like when that was how many millions of dollars just popped yeah. up out of nowhere that people have, they're just like, it's time to respond. 
Um, what do you think is actually a little more successful? Because I've heard arguments for both, which is, you know, waiting for these kinds of events and bringing all your top donors together or convincing a donor to participate in a monthly giving structure so that they, you always have this constant stream of income or revenue coming in for the nonprofit, which one? Yeah. Give me an argument. Yeah. So, so the monthly donors, I also kind of throw into the same pile as direct mail donors, right? Mm -hmm. So they tend to be the bread and butter of many, many charities. They're the largest number of donors in that kind of modality. Um, But it's really those major top donors that make or break any successful campaign. You know what the average guy is going to do. You have no idea what the person who can write a six or seven figure gift is going to do. Um, so I think those are the ones that, that really change things around. I think you're going to see, yeah, a lot more people are doing monthly donations. Um, you know, in a former life, once COVID hit, we called every single monthly donor and we said to them, you know, I don't know what your personal situation is. I know that on the 12th of next month, your next payment is coming due. Are we okay to take that payment? Really was an excuse to get in front of the donor, virtually, um, to get in front of them. And the vast majority of them either kept their gift, some of them even increased their gift and said, wow, oh, all I'm giving is X. Well, why don't we bump it up? Mm -hmm. There were a couple that said, put it on hold you know, I just lost my job or, you know, everything's been furloughed, but call me in six months. Cause in those days we thought six months, everything would be hunky dory. Um, but it's not like take me off the lists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see that as a huge thing. I also see that from those monthly donors, that's your pool for planned giving prospects. I hate that phrase planned giving by the way, because mm-hmm. every gift is planned, right? Except for when you have your next door neighbors, kids come for girl guide cookies. That's not planned. You just don't want to look like a heel. Right. But, but every gift is planned giving. You know, I guess the, the opposite is impulse giving. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would much prefer to say deferred giving. So, you know, I think that there's a lot more folks that are going to scratch their head and say, you know what, I'm going to kind of update my wills. And I think a lot of people are updating their wills now with this COVID um, craziness. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I'm hoping that they, they start thinking philanthropically about what they want to do. Yeah, and there's yeah. there's great ways of of having huge impact um, in people's estates, and I think that with this intergenerational transfer of wealth, as the boomers are getting older, and then the Gen Xers are going to be inheriting it. Well, actually, you can even go back further and say the traditionalists, um, you know, the folks that were born in between mid twenties and mid forties, they're all kind of dying off. And they're leaving their estates to the boomers, which are the most successful cohort in history. So the boomers say, hey, I just, you know, I'm a doctor. My wife is a lawyer. And dear old dad passed away. And dear old dad had, you know, a house and some savings and some investments. I don't really need dear old dad's money. How about I I give it to charity? Running a business, working your nonprofit, or just simply making an impact takes a lot of energy, which means you need the drink of champions, coffee. Specifically, you need Door County Coffee, a gourmet coffee roastery on a mission to bring you the best coffee on the planet. And that isn't hard when they only roast the top 2% of Arabica beans grown in the entire world. Try any of their medium or dark roasts, like my personal favorite, the Heroes Blend. Or you can try one of their almost 100 delicious flavors like Highlander Grog, Frosted Cinnamon Buns, or Vanilla Creme Brulee. 
They ship all across the country, so try your first pot today by going to DoorCountyCoffee.com and using the code IMPACT for 15% off your order. That's I-M-P-A-C-T for 15% off at DoorCountyCoffee.com. And get caffeinated today. Um, number one, that it kind of sparks an idea. And I actually was just talking about this with my mom this weekend is the idea of endowments. And I think yep. people aren't super familiar with that term as like younger fundraisers. Um, do you have any experience working with people? And again, as we said, in a morbid way, people are updating their wills, they're getting prepared with COVID. Um, do you have any experience with endowment funds? Most definitely. So when I was at the hospital, uh, we ran a $100 million campaign, 50 of it was for capital and 50 of it was for endowment for research. Mm. Um, when I was with the Ottawa Jewish Community Foundation, we ran a $25 million endowment campaign. Um, endowments are a tough challenge to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, you, if you're a university and you wanted to give out a $1,000 scholarship every year, well, to endow that, you need like $35,000 to give out that $1,000 every single year. Um, so it takes a whole lot more capital to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I think endowments are, are definitely, it's a way of kind of keeping a legacy out there. And I think that's really what it is. It's not, it's not a bequest per se to say, you know, I'm giving charity ABC $10,000 when I die. It's what's your legacy going to be? Um, and my big push with folks is I would much rather as a charity have a percentage of your estate, even if it was 1%, than be given $10,000. So when I was at the hospital, um, we received a bequest from a donor, uh, $25,000, but I looked at it. The, the donor hadn't updated their will in 25 years. Mm-hmm. So when it, he originally created his will, $25,000 probably represented a big portion of his estate and net worth. When he passed away, while $25,000 is a very generous gift, mm-hmm. it probably was a, a small fraction of what his net worth was. And I don't know if he necessarily thought of it saying, you know, as my wealth grows, then it's there. You know, uh, in Canada, your your tax treatment of a gift works out to be about 50 cents on the dollar, right? So if you give $10,000, the cost is about $5,000. So the same with an estate. So if you leave 5% of your um, uh, estate to a charity, then the rest of the estate really gets to, you know, 97.5%. So I used to say to everyone, give 2% to charity. So with the tax treatment, it really only counts as 1%. And show me a family that says, no, sorry, we can't live on 99% of the estate. Mm-hmm. This is so fascinating to me because I, you know, I grew up in more of a, a lower income neighborhood. The, like these were not conversations that were ever had when I was growing up and I didn't even learn that this was a thing until college. And I think like my junior or senior year in a grant writing course, and it was just casually mentioned (laughs) that this was an option. So this is fascinating to me. Are those tough conversations to have with people though, because they do make a donor address their age, their mortality, you know, I mean, that's, that's gotta be a tough conversation. Yeah, so actually we did a focus group um, in one of my previous lives, and Mm -hmm. um, it was really neat because we were behind the tinted glass and we saw them going, um, and we came up with some conclusions. Anyone under 65 really doesn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't want to talk about wills and estates and things like that. Um, They don't want to address their own mortality. Um, But 
the, the vast majority of folks that are donors as a bequest tend to be your direct mail donors. So the person that gives you, you know, a hundred bucks a year or $20 a month, those are a much greater candidate to leave a bequest than the individual who gives you half a million dollars once. Mm. Um, and it's just kind of that longevity. And the reality is, is once you're kind of on that preferred charity list, there's almost nothing you can do to be removed from that charity. We even asked the question, what about fraud? And they mm -hmm. said, well, you might get less, but at the end of the day, the good work that the charity does still needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So we still believe in the charity. Um, so it was an interesting lesson that's learned. It's all about the discussions around the table. And, you know, what are the, when you grew up, you know, did your parents ever talk about money? Did your parents ever talk about what their legacy is? Um, did your parents ever share with you, this is what I've left in my will? Um, you know, so many people, it's like a surprise. Um, I have two young kids, but they both know that we've left a, a chunk to charity in the will. Mm. At the moment, they get debt, but hopefully one day when I have more money, they'll, they'll share in it. Um, but I think that that's an important thing, and it's having those discussions um, so that there's no surprises and that the, the, the next gen feels great about that. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't want that older gen to kind of be the puppet master and to dictate, well, this is how it's going to happen. You want to have everyone on the same page. So it's really having those frank and open discussions. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and money conversations are hard, but I think a lot of this this generation especially, I think younger millennials and then Gen Z are flipping a lot of that those tables on money conversations. Um, so Jack, as we wrap up, that was so mind-blowing even to me, because again, this was not a conversation <laughs> ever had in, in my neighborhood. Um, my two, my last two things for you are, do you have any last bit of, of wisdom, of a, a gold nugget, you know, from your book, from fundraising you'd like to discuss? Um, and then to end with where people can find your book um, and connect with you and, and learn more about you and, and follow more of your, you know, the wisdom that you like to share and fundraising. Sure. sure. The biggest thing that a takeaway that I can do is to focus on the why someone should give and not the how. Mm -hmm. So, so many times you take a look at, you know, this is how you give a gift. This is how you do gifts of appreciated securities. Well, if you haven't got past the why someone would give in the first place, the how is kind of irrelevant. And so many times you have organizations that, oh, we have to have brochures on how to give a bequest and how to do, you know, gifts of appreciated securities. Who cares? Focus on why someone should give and what's the impact of their gift. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really the nugget is to kind of focus on the why. The how is irrelevant. It will work itself out. That's an easy thing. You can get to the why after you've got, or to the how after you've got past the why, but you can't flip it. So that comes first. Mm -hmm. um, so my website is www.yucks.ca. Um, so uh, in Canada, that's our, it's not .com, it's .ca. Um, <laughs> so that's where we have it. And uh, happy to, to chat with folks. Uh, the book comes out December 1st on amazon.com. Mm -hmm. What a wonderful way to celebrate Giving Tuesday than with a yes. book launch. How exciting. There you go. Yes. Love it. Well, Jack, thank you so much for sitting down and taking the time to share a lot of the wisdom that you have, again, from 25 years in fundraising. It was so helpful, um, you know, from, gosh, from, from big donors to endowments to all the things. So, again, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Make an Impact Podcast. If you enjoyed yourself, would you do a little rate, review, subscribe, dance? And if you really enjoyed yourself, would you share this on social media so someone else could catch the impact bug? Until next time, friend, I can't wait to see what kind of impact you make on your world.